This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Welcome to my new happy place. Imagine the walls are decorated with massive photos of the rainforest, each emitting a green glow, and the sounds of nature are all around us. It's so calm and tranquil in this exhibit exploring happiness. Right. <laughs> it's bucketing it down now. It's nice being surrounded by trees. I think after lockdown especially, when we've sort of been isolated in our own four walls and then suddenly to be transported to a tropical jungle is particularly lovely. Ah, it's so nice in there. Producer Beth had to literally drag me out of that rainforest room in order to make the Inside Health podcast. I'm James Gallagher and I promise you we'll be going back to that exhibit before the end of the pod. But first... Remember last week when we were talking about how a rise in infections that had all disappeared during COVID was starting to make a comeback and that was piling on pressure in children's A&E? Well, doctors have also been warning that many of the children turning up in hospital shouldn't be there at all. So to discuss, Damien Rowland is a consultant in paediatric emergency medicine at University Hospitals of Leicester NHS Trust. And of course, our own resident GP, Margaret McCartney. Hello. Hi there. So, Damien, I'm going to come to you first. What is it that is enough for a parent to have gone, I'm bringing them in, but you're like, nah, mate, you don't need to be here? <laughs> a good question. So we see lots of children presenting who walk into the waiting room, sometimes run around, they're eating a biscuit or they're eating a packet of crisps, they're smiling, who by and large aren't particularly unwell in terms of they need an emergency treatment. But the parents brought them there because they sometimes focus too much on symptoms rather than the actual child. But parents have always been worried about their children's health. So why are so many children ending up in A&E? What's bringing them to the emergency department I think is I can hear that... someone coming to your emergency department right now. Oh, can you hear that? Ooh. No, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Keep going. One of the reasons is, is that when parents are reaching out for advice they want a face-to-face contact and when they contact their local GP surgery for example they're sometimes not able to get through for an actual physical appointment or they may not be able to get through at all and the feedback that we get from the parents we see in the ED is that they're desperate for someone to see their child and sometimes it's felt that the emergency department is the only place that you can go to get that type of review. And Margaret, you've been listening to that. Is this an issue that you're seeing as well, that you can't see the children face to face? You're offering far more telephone appointments than ever before. I mean, there's absolutely no question that primary care is massively overwhelmed. And of course, before COVID, primary care was barely coping with what we're going to have to deal with. I mean, it has been a nightmare. I mean, one of the things that breaks my heart is people who say they're not doing face-to-face appointments, the doors are closed. I promise you, we've been working all the way through pandemic, seeing people who need to be seen face-to-face. But equally, we've also been trying to do as much remotely as possible. Trying to assess a child over the phone is really difficult. And there certainly are a few instances when I've spoken to parents and it's become clear perhaps the child hasn't passed urine for 24 hours or is not feeding very young has a temperature under six months when they will need to be seen in hospital and that's quite an easy decision but for a lot of children they're in this kind of grey area could they be ill could they not be ill and do you see parents as well they want you to have seen their child it's not enough to just have spoken to you on the phone 
Yeah, I think everyone gets a bit more reassurance when they're seen face to face. Having said that, lots of people just want to get a bit of reassurance on the phone. But of course, parents are damned if they do and damned if they don't. You know, they're told to stay away from hospitals, but also think sepsis. Don't come to your doctors unnecessarily. And my sympathy is absolutely with parents. It's a really difficult time. Normally, maybe your mum or your parent might be around to help you look after your child. Or perhaps you'd be going to nursery, chatting more with parents. You can compare your experiences to other people. But of course, when that's not available, we lose all that soft knowledge that comes with bringing up children. Can I pick up that point on mixed messages? Because I think that is really important. I've had big debates with some of my paediatric colleagues that pre the pandemic, lots of people saying, how do we manage these large volumes of of children and young people who don't need to be in emergency or even primary care services? COVID comes along and we panic completely the other way. We start telling parents, you've got to come, we're open. So I feel so sorry for parents. And I think parents and carers generally have done an amazing job over COVID, that they have managed simple illnesses and injuries at home. And what we're trying to do is support them to continue to do that. Damien, are you worried that this is going to intensify in the months to come? Because we heard on last week's Inside Health about the rise in a whole load of respiratory infections. That's only going to make things even worse. Yeah, so this is occupying virtually 100% of my time at the moment. And that's across the system. As Margaret's saying, primary care is overwhelmed, emergency services are overwhelmed. And we haven't even started touching those children yet who are going to be significantly unwell and definitely do need hospital care. Margaret, I know we can't pin everything on GPs, but what can GPs do to help minimise the number of patients that end up in A&E so that parents like me don't go rushing off to the nearest hospital? Depending on your practice, you might have a receptionist that's signposting you, saying, you know, have you tried the pharmacy for this? Or you might have triage done by a clinician who's trying to work out the best place for you to be seen. Or you might be asked to do some kind of digital triage, filling in a form online with the GP practice, and then a clinician will contact you, or they might just write back to you with advice. It's a difficult balancing act, though, isn't it? Because I'm listening to that and going, I just want to speak to a doctor about my two-year-old. And if the receptionist says, no, go off to your pharmacy, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to drag them down to A&E. Yeah, I completely understand, James. And I, and I think we all know the value of feeling that we've been listened to by someone who knows us and someone who can appropriately reassure us. The problem is that we're looking for very rare problems and it's trying to find the children who really do need to be seen while allowing the other ones not to have to go to A&E where they really can't benefit from it. But then again, the value of reassurance is immense to many people. So Damien, help me be a better parent. What are the things that I should not be bringing my children into hospital for? Okay, the things that I would advise uh, parents to always think about first is what are you worried about? So if you're just worried about the fever, the vomit, the diarrhea, but your child in themselves, you know they're well, that does not need to be brought to an emergency department. So are parents just focused on the symptoms rather than the overall picture of their child? Exactly. So there's this concept of fever phobia, but fever is actually a good thing. Fever is the body's response to try and cure itself of the infection that it has. And it's really sad that we've come to this notion that fever itself itself is bad because fever is a good thing and what parents and carers need to do is treat distress not the fever i mean i'm sure it's weird to me as a parent listening to it even from like your first encounters with doctors and nurses you're told to combat fever the medical profession are the worst at this they fuel this fever phobia anxiety 
Margaret? I suspect I'm older than Damien and I remember being taught that fevers were terrible things in children and we were taught to give advice to parents, open the window, fan them down, sponge cool them and it wasn't until 2012-2013 that the advice started to change and we were now saying well actually fever when you've got an illness means your immune system is working so it's medicine's fault. We have fueled this problem that um, has made many parents extremely anxious about a fever in an otherwise well child. Damien, let me ask a stupid question because I often find they're revealing. Can you have a fever that's too high? No. So, what? And I can be quite blunt about that. So if you lock yourself in a car or a greenhouse in very hot weather for your temperature to go over 41 degrees, but that you have to make an active decision to do. But if you're a child with an infection, your temperature is going to be 38, 39, 40, sometimes up to 40.5 or so. And although that sounds horrendously high, it doesn't really make a difference to the outcome for that child. It just means that they've got a temperature they're likely to be very distressed so we give them paracetamol or ibuprofen for the distress not the fever i feel like you're making me rewrite my brain here i I always thought that it was like you can't get the fever too high they'll end up fitting and having seizures There's absolutely no evidence that you can prevent what we call a febrile seizure or a febrile convulsion by repeatedly giving paracetamol or ibuprofen. Lots of studies have tried to do it and it doesn't work. So what's causing those convulsions if it's not the fever? Actually, we don't really know. It's it's a really interesting topic of research. What we think happens, it's the change in temperature. This is anecdotal, but this is what I see all the time. It's when the fever suddenly changes or comes on. And I think it's that change that causes this little scrambling in the brain. You have the seizure and then nine times out of 10, you recover completely and it doesn't cause a problem at all. I get from a parent's point of view that watching your child have a convulsion is extremely scary, but we're not going to be able to stop it happening. So let's flip the coin. What are the times that you absolutely have to go to A&E? Less than six months with a fever, you should certainly seek medical advice. If you've had a definite fever for five days, and again, that needs medical review. I'm going to put a quick plug in here for making sure you use the right apparatus for taking a temperature. Don't use a forehead thermometer. They're useless. They will give you the wrong reading. Try and use something that you put in the ear. To call an ambulance... If you're having a seizure, any child for any length of time, the parents should seek instant medical attention. And if your child's unrousable, you simply cannot wake them up. Again, that needs an ambulance calling for them. Damien, Margaret, thanks so much for coming on the programme. I wasn't anticipating having to relearn everything about my children's health when we started this interview. Thanks, James. Well, there's lots more nuggets where that came from. Don't get me started on some of the myths we have about head injuries and vomiting as well. Right, we'll have you back in another programme, Damien. Excellent. Damien Rowland and Margaret McCartney there. Now, if you can, sit back, close your eyes and relax and join me as we head back into the forest in search of happiness. I'm Laurie Britton-Yule. I'm the co-curator of the Joy and Tranquility exhibitions here at Welcome Collection. I'm Sarah Garfinkel. I'm a professor of cognitive neuroscience at UCL. Thank you for inviting me to the Welcome Collection. I am feeling very chilled right now. Where are we? We're in an installation by the photographer Crystal Abbas called Regarding Forests, and it features very large format photographs of two forests to evoke exactly that, a feeling of kind of awe and serenity. And it's not just photographs, is it? I think everyone can hear some perfectly timed monkeys. And an aroma too? 
Yes, the photographer Crystal documented sound on location, but also we worked with a scent designer to create the scent of the forest floor using a base called petrichor, which is the bacteria that's released from the soil after it rains. It's been a horrible year and a half for a lot of people. Happiness has been an incredibly elusive thing a lot of the time. Yeah, absolutely. What a time to do a season on happiness. But I think as we worked on the project through the pandemic, it felt really important to reframe this kind of central question of in times of difficulty, what kind of pulls you through? And Sarah, what so many people did was they went outside and explored the world around them during the pandemic, wasn't it? What does the natural world and our surroundings mean for our happiness? It has big implications for our happiness. I did a study um, where we were looking at neurocircuitry in the brain and responses in the heart to natural sounds versus artificial sounds. And we found this particularly beautiful um, series of findings where natural sounds had a powerful effect to increase happiness ratings. And we're actually seeing these changes in the nature of the cardiac patterns and the nature of the neural activity. Do you think my boss should start playing rainforest sound effects Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Laurie, I think you've brought me to probably one of the most delicate things you've got on show. Yes, indeed. This is a medieval English folding almanac. There's only one or two of these in the world. It's been painstakingly stitched and embroidered on the outside, and it opens up to contain lunar and solar calendars and an illustration very influential at the time of the Zodiac Man. So what role did that have in medicine? Physicians would have studied astrology alongside medicine and a physician would have taken this, carried on their belt to treat a patient and really asked quite specific details about what time and date and moment at which the patient had fallen ill and I guess treatment would have been prescribed in accordance with these lunar and solar calendars. So this idea of treatment of mind and body in relation to our surroundings and our natural world is obviously a very ancient concept but it's very prevalent today too in terms of looking at ideas of the way in which sunlight affects our health and our our mood as well. And this is data I can see from the 1400s. It's lit but only for 20 odd seconds at a time or something? Absolutely yeah so we have to really reduce the amount of light exposure that the object has because it has such exquisite colour and detail. I can tell looking at this is making you happy. Absolutely, and throughout lockdown, being separate from the objects has been so difficult, so it's just really wonderful to be back in the space with these beautiful physical things. So I really want to take you this direction because I want to show you my most favourite sign that I've ever seen in my life. I can't wait. Okay. (laughs) And we'll see where Sarah leads me to in a moment. But first, I want to show you something. Take a listen to this. What was the single most disgusting thing you've plucked out of somebody's ear? Uh, Well, I've taken out many things from people's ears. Glass beads, insects, spiders, crickets, cotton buds. Dare I say I've even taken out a wrap of cocaine from somebody's ear. (laughs) How did that conversation go? quite tricky patient comes in with hearing loss and is a bit sketchy about their history and that they think they've got a cotton bud in their ear and then you remove it and then you realize that it's a white powder covered in cellophane so yeah that that was an interesting conversation cocaine and spiders eh you get it all on inside health that was andrew hill who's an ear nose and throat nurse at university hospitals of bristol and western we got him on actually to talk about earwax but i couldn't help myself i had to share that unexpected and incredibly gross moment with you Uh, but anyway 
Ewax, that's what we're here for. Because all of us make it all of the time, it helps keep our ears free from infection. Fun fact for you, it slowly moves down your ear canal at about the same pace as your fingernails grow, if you can imagine that. It's vital stuff, but for some of us, it can become a right pain in the ear, including for listener Peter Wormington. The first time I remember was the engagement party, and the girl getting engaged also had earwax problems. So we spent the whole evening talking into each other's ears, which rather upset the bloke getting engaged as well. It sounds very intimate. It was. Very nice. She was a very attractive girl. <laughs> so just walk me through it. What's the process for keeping on top of your earwax? Normally put some olive oil in every now and again, ring the surgery and they would clear it all out in irrigation and my hearing would be crystal clear. And that's been the case since I was in my 20s. If they didn't do that, I'd become deaf, more or less. But then, Peter, you got in touch with us. So what changed? During lockdown, the surgery put me off for six months or so. And eventually they said they were not doing it anymore. So what was the impact on your ability to hear then if you weren't being able to access the GP? Well, my hearing did get progressively worse. And I suffer from a condition called ataxia which affects your balance coordination. I was concerned that if both ears got blocked, my balance would get much worse. I spoke to a retired doctor. He recommended a solution that dissolved the wax. That didn't seem to help. I looked on the internet, olive oil solutions that claimed to help didn't really seem to have much of an impact. Eventually, I went back to the surgery and they recommended a high street chain who could suck the wax out as opposed to uh, irrigation. I was quite surprised at that because the high street charged 50 quid, which is no problem for me, but would become a burden for other people. It sounds like it's a bit of a pain, you know, you've been dealing with earwax for most of your life, going to your GP, getting it sorted every year, and now they're saying, off you pop, down the high street, go pay for it yourself. Yes, you're then going to someone that doesn't necessarily have the expertise you're looking for. But I tried them. The guy was very nice. And are you getting exactly the same service on the high street as you would at the GP? Well, the suction seemed to restore the hearing. But whereas the irrigation would restore it crystal clear, so you felt as if you were hearing every bird fly past and every pin drop, the Suction restores the hearing, but not to the same degree of clarity. So I'll have to wait and see if in a year's time the wax is waxed up quicker. Do you think there's still something stuck in there? Yeah, there may be. Peter, thanks for getting in touch by emailing insidehealth at bbc.co.uk. Let's see if we can figure out what's going on for you with our nurse, Andrew Hill. And I'll be honest, earwax is a problem that I also struggle with a bit. On the morning of my 30th birthday, Andy, I woke up and I was unable to hear out of one of my ears and it turned out that earwax was the problem. So why did that happen to me? Well, that could be the shape of your ear canal. It could be that you're a hearing aid user and people that have hearing aids or need earplugs for their jobs, the wax doesn't move along the canal and then wax can become impacted and block the ear canal. Equally, you may have 
eczema, which can be confined to your ear canal. And you can produce lots more wax and skin debris. And then that, instead of moving along nicely, can get compressed and compacted. But sometimes it could just be one of those things. As we get older, the property of our wax probably changes. And for us chaps who lose hair on our heads, we end up sprouting hair from our ears and things like that. And then the hair can sometimes then make it very difficult for wax to move along. I don't think we need to uh, probe too deeply into how hairy my ears are. I don't, I don't think anybody wants to hear uh, that. Um, one of my okay. colleagues is an avid cold water swimmer, and they're actually having surgery on their ears because they've had weird bone growth. Is that a thing? Absolutely is a thing. It's the ear's response to having cold water in it. Certainly down in the southwest, you know, we have lots of coastal waters and people surf or cold water swim, and it sort of stimulates bone growth within the ear canal, and then wax can get trapped behind it. So there are lots of different techniques you can use to get that earwax out of the ear. I mean, Peter mentioned water to wash it out of his ears. Yeah, that's right. That's something that they do, particularly in primary care. It's not something we tend to do in the hospital. And now he's moved on to suction. Yeah, so it's what it says on the tin, really. We use a very tiny sucker and a microscope, then carefully suck the wax away and move it to the middle part of the ear and then manually remove it if needed with little tiny forceps. Is that suction as good as the washy irrigation technique? Because Peter doesn't feel like he's getting quite the same service as he used to. Well, I would say actually the microsuction is a much better way of removing earwax Firstly, you're not getting the ear wet. Secondly, you're looking directly down the ear canal and you can see that all the wax is removed. So it is down to the view that you have and also the skill of the user. Peter mentioned it, and I've done it myself, is pour a little bit of olive oil in there. Is that making a difference? Yes. So wax predominantly is skin debris and fats. So if you use something like olive oil, it will soften the wax and then it has more flow properties and then it's much more likely to flow out of the canal. Andrew, thank you for opening my eyes to the weird world of what people stick into their ears and to the incredible powers of earwax. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. You're most welcome. Let's turn now to our resident GP, Margaret McCartney. Margaret, hi, welcome back. Hello, James. How often are you getting people coming in through your surgery door complaining about earwax? It's a really common problem. You know, it's one of those problems that doesn't attract much research funding. It's not in the news about any breakthroughs about it. And of course, hearing is a really important sense, particularly when we're all wearing face masks. So some people are really disabled at the moment if they can't hear properly and they're missing out on being able to lip read. Margaret, you you know, my favourite job here is just to hold you accountable for all GPs in the whole of the country. So why are some people struggling to get access to basic earwax services? Yeah, the bottom line is that earwax removal in England appears not to be a commission service, which basically means that GPs are not funded to provide it. And it means, therefore, there are no obligation to provide it. So therefore, there are strict rules being put in place about who has access rights to it and who doesn't. And irrigation is still being done in some places. In some places, they're referring people straight through for microsuction. But there tend to be lots of criteria in place. And they tend to really be trying to aim, I think, from reading it to do as little as possible. Peter's come a cropper of that, but it's the same thing happening across the whole of the NHS. Everywhere seems to have different rules. I've been looking at lots of CCG websites and and there's variations upon themes and the themes are 
obviously places are trying to reduce the amount of ear irrigation that they're offering and they're trying to get people to do more self-management using more oil. Now in Scotland um, it's slightly different, we don't have commissioning but what we know is that the health board should be providing these services but the waiting list is really really long. Now treating earwax is actually a very satisfying thing to do. There's not very many things that you can instantly make people feel better with. So it's one of those things that is really good to do because it makes everyone happy but yet the funding doesn't follow it and when the funding doesn't follow it things just tend to fall down. Are you a bit worried about the consequence of this because there are all kinds of dodgy earwax treatments out there. You must have come across some of those too. You are so right. There are a variety of bizarre devices that are being marketed just now that do not have any evidence supporting them whatsoever. One of the things that really worries me are these ear candles, which are these hollow candles that are supposedly placed in people's ears and burned down. And they're allegedly supposed to remove earwax. Well, there's no evidence at all that they do. Of course, that wax is going to go somewhere quite often back into the ear canal to cause more problems. And I've certainly seen burns in relation to them being used. So don't use those. The one thing that I don't want near my ears is naked flames. <laughs> there is one thing that might actually be helpful. There was a trial done a few years ago, actually, in GP practices in Hampshire, and they used simple bulb syringes. So these really look a bit like a light bulb and they're very cheap to buy from chemists and they irrigate the ear. But you can do it at home by yourself. And they found that actually it wasn't quite as good as ear irrigation, but it certainly did help a lot of people. And although NICE don't individually recommend them, if you look on the NICE website, there is a link to a leaflet that explains who can and can't use them and how they might be helpful. Well, I'm straight onto the internet as soon as this programme's over. Um, (laughs) Are there any concerns with people turning to high streets instead of getting it done on the NHS? I mean, are you getting the same standard of care as you would otherwise? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of reputable services out there. I'm sure there's some that are not as reputable as well. And I suspect it's very hard to tell who from who. So if you were considering that, I would certainly try and make sure you're going somewhere that knows what they're doing and have all the appropriate qualifications. Margaret, earwax removal is never going to be the sexiest branch of medicine. Are there other equally, dare I even say, mundane bits of general practice that are being dropped? Well, as you know, James, no part of general practice is mundane, but certainly some areas may seem to other people to be less glamorous than others. I suppose one um, service that has kind of evaporated is the toenail cutting service that our podiatry colleagues used to offer for people who weren't able to cut their own toenails. And that seems like quite a trivial thing. But of course, if your toenails are long and overgrown, if you can't wear shoes properly, if you end up falling and tripping, a small problem ends up becoming a really big problem. And locally, we have Um, volunteers who have taken over um, simple toenail cutting. But I think it is an example of how the volunteer sector is having to step in when a service that used to be provided in the NHS is no longer. There's no volunteers out there in your patch removing people's earwax? Not as far as I know. (laughs) (laughs) Margaret McCartney there. Uh, But now for one last time, let's head back to the Welcome Collection, where I've been tantalisingly promised the best sign in the world. Exit this way to joy. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) And then you also have here, where is is the next one? Oh, there, this way to joy. (laughs) (laughs) It's promising a lot though, Sarah. And it delivers. (laughs) 
Sarah, you led me to joy, and little did I realise you were going to bring me to something about good bacteria and gut bacteria. You really have brought me joy, because this is one of my favourite subjects. Laurie, do you want to tell me what we've got here? Yes, so we're standing in front of um, an Islamic medical text from 1632, and it's open on this illustration of a human figure with the kind of intestines and the gut. And I think what's so interesting, this idea that the emotions really resided in the gut and that you would treat imbalance or disorders of melancholy, for example, through a programme for the intestine, for the gut, for the stomach. 20, 30 years ago, someone would have laughed at that idea. Now, people really think that you can make a difference to people's overall health and well-being by targeting gut bacteria. Absolutely, and it's been a real joy to learn that this has such an ancient history. I love this one a lot. It's an anonymous drawing from the 15th century which depicts Aristotle's belief that the senses are a gateway to perception. And I'm so interested in this because my research looks at how heart signals can shape our emotions and our cognitions. So that's one of the things that I find really interesting about the human body. We think of the heart or the brain or the immune system or the digestive system, but they're not. They're all interconnected and talking to each other. And I honestly believe there's going to be a revolution in how we look at mechanisms underlying health where we start to integrate all of these systems together and it's through integration that we can get new insights into how to best help people. Well I definitely found my joy thank you to tour guides neuroscientist Sarah Garfinkel and curator Laurie Britton-Newell. But that's it from Inside Health from me James Gallagher. Yes I said James Gallagher then and James Gallagher at the beginning and as my producers constantly take the mick out of me I am nominatively fluid. Uh, Those producers are Beth Eastwood and Geraldine Fitzgerald. The studio manager is Sarah Hockley and from all of us do stay safe.